Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod. Today we're meeting with Jim Fellman, partner with Kynes, Markman, and Fellman in Tampa, Florida. Jim, thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Well, I should also say that Jim is a former chair of the criminal justice section and also serving as chair on the standards task force for sentencing. Is that correct? Yes. And we're meeting with him today because he is serving as the current chair of the criminal justice section First Step Act Implementation Task Force. So to jump in, for our listeners, just a refresher, the First Step Act was passed in the early months of this year. Was it January? Actually, it was passed uh, in December of last year. Oh, that's right. It was before the end of the year. Okay, thank you for that correction. So the First Step Act shortens mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent drug offenses. And beyond sentencing reform, the First Step Act includes provisions that will improve conditions for current prisoners and address several laws that increased racial disparities in the federal prison system. At least that's a summary you can find online. So we'll jump into our conversation because obviously the criminal justice section is very interested in the First Step Act and what will happen now that the act is passed and its implementation as set in the task force. Jim, let's start at the beginning of the First Step Act passing. As I understand it, you were involved in policy discussions before the act passed. Is that correct? Yes, in the sense that uh, many of us in the criminal justice community have been involved in efforts at criminal justice reform for many years. And those efforts, kind of in rough terms, involved efforts at reform on what we call the front end of a sentence or the sentencing process itself, as well as reforms at what are called the back end, which is early release and rehabilitation efforts and how long do people stay in prison. So the First Step Act represents the culmination of years of effort at both front end and back end reforms. I will say that as ultimately enacted, it's a little lighter on front-end reforms than the earlier efforts were. It it is primarily a back-end reform effort, although there are some ameliorative first front-end reforms. Knowing all of that, why has the section formed a task force on implementation? What is your main objective? So the the implementation of the Act is going to be critical. The Act has the potential to be one of the most significant reforms of the criminal justice system and the federal system in decades. But the key to that is going to be in the details. And so we have focused particularly on the key component of the back-end reform. The back-end reform involves the creation of what is called a risk assessment tool. So the risk assessment tool is intended to use empirical data to try to predict which prisoners present the greatest risks of recidivism and also to address what needs these prisoners might have that could be addressed through programming that would reduce those risks of recidivism. So the risk assessment tool that is called for by the First Step Act was required by the Act to be created very swiftly. The Department of Justice was required to release the draft of the tool by July the 28th 
or July the 18th, I'm sorry, of this year. And they did that. They met that deadline. And what the tool does is divide all federal prisoners into four categories of risk of recidivism, high, medium, low, and minimal. And then for those prisoners who are in the minimal and low risk categories, the incentive is that they will participate in needs-based programming that would give them the opportunity to earn gain time credits that would allow them to be released early. And they are significant incentives. The Act provides for up to 15 days of gain time credit for every 30 days in an approved program. And even prisoners in the medium and high risk have an incentive to participate in these programs because through their completion, the successful completion of these programs, they have the opportunity to have their risk level reduced. So Whereas in the present system, everyone does roughly 85% of their time, assuming good behavior. Under the First Step Act, with this risk assessment tool, it's possible that the prisoners in the minimal and low categories might serve less than half of their sentence, at least in prison, through these programs. So the ABA obviously is keenly interested in the details of how this risk assessment tool will be developed and implemented, and that's why we created this task force to try to be involved in that process. So what has been done so far? So our first effort was to assemble some expertise, and we've put together a great task force that's made up of a cross-section of interests. We've got Chris LeBogan from Vanderbilt University, who is an esteemed scholar in this area, widely published on risk assessment tools for the, the expertise. We've got Matt Riedel, a prosecutor. Chief Judge John Thunheim from the District of Minnesota gives us a judicial perspective. There are an array of us that are defense attorneys on the task force. We've got other academics, Steve Zeidman. So we've got a very talented and deep bench in our task force, and particularly Chris Bogan on the merits of risk assessment tools. So we gathered our expertise, and the first thing that we did was to participate in a listening session that the DOJ conducted prior to their release of the tool. And so we did go to that listening session, and essentially we implored them to involve us all as much as possible in the creation of the tool and in the dialogue around the tool. But then we were mostly in a waiting game, waiting for them to release the tool. So when the tool was released on July the 18th, we then immediately focused our efforts on evaluating the tool. What we concluded initially is that we had a lot of questions. We felt like it, it's premature to provide much comment about it until we have the answers to some very fundamental questions. So our task force got involved in drafting the questions that we had, and we were very gratified that President Judy Perry Martinez was willing to sign a letter to the Department of Justice in which we asked our questions. So on August the 26th of this year, uh, we sent a letter from President Martinez to Attorney General Barr in which we asked roughly 20 or 25 questions to try to understand what has been done with the tools. So that was our first effort, was to ask a lot of questions. And as I understand it, you're here in D.C. because you had another listening session with the DOJ yesterday. Were you able to get any answers yesterday? Well, it's a listening session, so yes, tell us about how that went yesterday and what you were able to share. Well, we were very gratified to be invited to the second listening session that the DOJ has conducted. And to their credit, they are inviting a wide array of organizations to come and give comment. And so we were included in that. So yesterday, 
Myself, Professor Slobogan, and April Fraser Camara, the chair-elect of the criminal justice section, went and, and presented to the Department of Justice at, at another listening session yesterday. And as you may infer from the name listening session, they listened. We don't really know what they're thinking, and they have not yet answered any of our questions, um, but was an opportunity for us to reiterate that we do have these questions and also to on behalf of the task force, express some initial concerns about what we're seeing so far. And would you mind sharing those concerns that you shared yesterday? Yes, my pleasure. So the, the, the first concern obviously relates to the questions, that, that the questions are not being answered, and we feel there's a tremendous need for greater transparency in the process. I will say that it's obvious to us that the Department of Justice has taken their job seriously. They have engaged Grant Dewey and Zach Hamilton, who are two of the leading experts on the creation of a risk assessment tool, to write the tool. And those gentlemen have done an extraordinary job in a very short period of time in developing this tool. But it's very difficult for us to evaluate their work without seeing the underlying data and without seeing and knowing the judgments and assessments and and definitions that they that they used in creating the tool. So the first concern we expressed was the need for greater transparency. I told the department that we certainly have shown the world how we can lead in incarceration. Wouldn't it be lovely if we could show the world how to lead in eliminating that trend? This is an opportunity for the United States to lead in the science of recidivism and the release of the data that underlies the creation of the tool would allow all scholars, all people around the world, to evaluate what we're doing and to discuss what we're doing. That has not been done. So our first concern that we expressed is the need for greater transparency. I will also say that there is a concern. The tool may have a racially disparate impact. When you look at the objective data around what factors result in greater risks of recidivism, Sadly, one of the predictors of recidivism is past misconduct. So criminal history factors very large in the tool. Another significant factor in the tool is whether or not person's arrest, their first arrest and conviction, was when they were younger than age 18. And we know that police practices in communities of color differs from other practices in other communities and can result in greater criminal history in those communities. So one of our concerns is that the tool will effectively bake in the racially disparate impact of police practices in our corrections and imprisonment practices. So that is a concern that we have expressed. Another concern we've expressed is the manner in which the tool treats infractions committed by prisoners. Appropriately, one predictor of success in the community upon release is their ability to comply with the rules in prison. Unfortunately, it appears the tool uses a very rough cut in that regard. Two serious infractions results in a very significant increase in score. One of the things we learn in the clemency process in looking at thousands of prisoners' practices in prison and the way infractions are handed out is that the Bureau of Prisons uses infractions for a different purpose than predicting recidivism. So what's called a 100-level infraction is deemed the most serious, and a 100-level infraction obviously would include killing someone, but it also includes possession of a controlled substance. So murder and having a joint 
are the same. So we're quite concerned about how infractions may be over-inclusive and overly severe in this tool. Another concern we expressed yesterday is the many questions that remain about due process and definitions. What happens if a prisoner doesn't think they've been scored correctly? What are the definitions of recidivism? What are the definitions of violent recidivism? In any event, as you can gather, there are simply many questions that we have that we don't have answers to. And we express to the department a desire to have more meaningful input. It's nice that they will listen to us. But as any therapist will tell you, a conversation in which only one party is speaking is not always productive. So we did express a desire to have a dialogue, a meaningful exchange about the process, and we are hopeful that as time goes forward that those opportunities will will present themselves. And so you've just begun the work of your task force this spring. How long does this task force anticipate being active? Well, we're going to work until we feel like we can't accomplish anything any further. We can't say exactly when that's going to be. The tool is still under development, although the law requires it to be used to evaluate every prisoner by January of next year. So time is somewhat short in that regard. But we believe that there will be an ongoing review of the tool. And so we hope that the department will make use of our expertise. We've got a really deep bench in the ABA, and we're hoping that some of our expertise will be useful. These are significant policy decisions that are being made, whereas in the past we have sentenced people based on the crime they have committed. This has the potential to shift our sentencing practices in effect to consider not only the crime that was committed, but also in some very real way our concern about what crime might be committed next. These are very important decisions and policy concerns that ought to be discussed freely and openly. So our task force at this point is is working around the idea of just hoping to have such conversations. And we haven't taken any positions in particular about anything yet because we really don't feel like we have enough information to take any positions. We just want the conversation to happen. So I expect that our work will continue for at least another year and potentially longer after that. And as we mentioned that letter that was sent to the DOJ earlier, and that letter can be found on the Government Affairs Office website of the ABA. So thank you again to Jim for joining us today and walking us through the work of the task force and just the First Step Act and where it's at. Well, thank you. And I will also say if there are any listeners out there who have expertise in risk assessment tools who wish to be involved in this process, please contact me because this is an all-hands-on-deck call and a very important matter. So thank you for listening, and I'd be happy to get anyone involved who is interested. That's great. And should that apply to you as a listener, please contact the criminal justice section and we will put you in touch with Jim. So thanks again, Jim, and thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.